Grace to you and peace from the God who is our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We consider together the words of our first lesson from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. There's a question that comes to us much more naturally, a variant on the question that King David asks. Who am I that I should give generously? That's the thought that comes to us quite quite naturally. We want to stubbornly hold on to the things that we, we value. And generosity and extravagant giving, they are simply frightening things. Who am I to give? Or why me? We often express the thought and the attitude, that's mine. That's mine, you can't have it. Got a chance to spend some time with my older son, his wife, and three grandchildren last Sunday afternoon to watch a football game. And I was reminded that pastor's kids have not changed in the many years since I was one. That is, that in an abundance of toys, a child like my youngest grandson, a year and a half old, may discard something and then see somebody else pick it up, his older brother. And now all of a sudden, that is mine. Give it back to me. That isn't changed about us. We think of the world and life around us with ourselves at the center and we're constantly tempted to selfishness. As we grow up, we tend to get better at hiding our selfishness, our, our selfish motivations. We have a, a rationale that we can present to, to show that our actions make perfect sense. And we also may end up just being, sadly, too good at, at hiding our selfishness from ourselves. When we listen to many of the voices in our, our culture, it almost seems as though selfishness has been defined out of existence. Certainly, I think you're going to find a whole lot of selfishness wherever anybody says, what's right is what's right for me. Even if one would refuse to put the label selfishness on that or the label sin, selfishness still does what sin does. It destroys and disrupts relationships. It puts distance between people. One thing that struck me in, in looking at this text in the past week is that here is an illustration of what the word shalom means in the Old Testament. Peace that is in the sense of a wholeness in relationships, a relationship without barriers, without pride, without self-centered behavior. 
when we consider this story, we see how David is on the same page as the Lord, finding joy that he was able to give so generously. Not just that he had enough wealth to be able to spare this or give it away, but the humble joy of recognizing the Lord is allowing me to participate in this great work that will help to make him known as a Savior God. But when selfishness comes into the picture, we should recognize I'm not like that. That's what I'm meant to be, but that is not what I am am like. We're meant to be like David was that day in his extravagant gifts, to be like the, the leaders of the, the tribes and the, the military, all who were gathered and who followed David in giving extravagant gifts, and the people who found great joy in seeing all of that. We're not meant to be selfish. We're, we're meant to be like Christ. Now, certainly, King David had his history of selfishness. More than one occasion where, confronted with what he had done, he realized, I'm the one who should die. There is one such incident of that that is absolutely tied to the construction of the temple. God had commanded David not to take a census of the nation and of the military, but against the advice of his, his gen general, Joab, he insisted on taking account of all the military men in, in Israel to know how powerful he, he was. That census took about the same amount of time between the conception of that child with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, and the arrival of the prophet Nathan to confront David. When the count comes back, now suddenly David realizes this is not something I should have done. The Lord gives him three choices, none of which we would want to choose, about how judgment should come. David chooses the, the third judgment, to entrust their, their, that judgment into the hands of the Lord. And so the Lord sends an angel throughout the land armed with a sword and spreading death going from Dan in the north of Israel all the way down to Beersheba. Now, as that angel of the Lord is getting closer to Jerusalem, David is told to go to this place, the threshing floor of a man named Arauna. He was to go there and make a sacrifice. He goes there about the same time as the angel of the Lord arrives and as Arana comes out of his, his tent. And David lets Arana know, I'm here to offer up a sacrifice. 
Arana wants to give him the property. He wants to provide the sacrificial animals, but David says, I'm not going to offer to the Lord a sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. And so David builds an altar to the Lord. He offers sacrifices on it. And the Lord instructed the angel to put that sword back in its sheath. Then David says, this is where the house of the Lord is to be built. The death of 70,000 people in Israel were all tied to David's proud and selfish act. It's the kind of thing that you might think should properly paralyze a person. Who am I to serve God when I am guilty of having done this? But David isn't paralyzed by it. In fact, he comes out of that committed to see to it that that temple will be built and will be built as something absolutely glorious and beautiful. So David was intent on building a temple for the Lord, which would be for him a reminder not just of his great guilt but of God's greater grace. Our lesson begins saying that then King David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. If you read between the lines, you'll, you'll recognize there's something kind of remarkable going on here. David had it in his heart to build the temple. And what did God say to him? No, David, not you. You are a man of war with blood on your hands. You are not the one to build the temple. But your son Solomon, whose name includes that word for peace, your son Solomon will build the temple. It was his heart's desire. And God said, no, you can't do that. But David did not pout. He did not grumble. He did not walk away thinking, well, I guess I shouldn't be involved in this at all. If I can't do the building, this, this whole thing is just not for me. But if you read 1 Chronicles 22 and following, over the next chapters, you see how David immediately threw himself into the things that needed to be done to, to make the building of the temple a success. He purchased large amounts of, of lumber for building the temple. He purchased iron for, for nails. He gave extravagant gifts of gold and of silver and of bronze. And he didn't stop there. He went on to organize the things that needed to be in place for the running of the temple. He organized the Levites for service, putting them into groups. He did the same with the priests. He gathered musicians for worship at the temple. 
He did many, many things that weren't building the temple, but were absolutely crucial for it to be what it needed to be. We wonder, how did David escape from that kind of selfishness that had shown itself so sadly in, in the past? And we really see the answer. We see the answer in his psalm of praise. Praise to that Lord who, who let him still be involved, who put the plans for the temple into David's mind by the Holy Spirit. As we consider this psalm of, of praise in our lesson, realize just what it is that praise does. It is not simply a matter of saying, I am praising you, Lord. Praise has content. The confidence that David had to live the way he lived and pursue what he intended to pursue came from these spiritual realities about the very nature of the God of Israel. If people try to avoid getting caught up in praise, they're really cutting themselves off from joy. Think of your, yourself praising something, and joy is in the picture. David had reason for joy, and that was the strength that kept him going on this project. He says, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. That name, Lord, in all capital letters, identifies this as the God of free and faithful grace. The I am who I am. The God who is absolutely independent and so he freely chooses to love us and commits himself to love us. He's the God of Israel, our father Israel. Now that's not the name he was born with, right? He was one of twins, Jacob and his brother Esau. How did he get that name? Well, after deceiving his father to get the blessing, he had to run away from home because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. So he goes off and he spends a fair amount of time being deceived by his uncle Laban. So many years later, he's returning home and the news is brought to him that his brother Esau is coming to greet him with some armed men. What... Jacob did at that point in time was he, he prayed to the Lord out of that concern. And he got a hold on God, wrestling with God in prayer that God could not break. That is, he said to the Lord, but you have promised. You have promised to bring me safely back. And so he is that that man who wrestled with God and prevailed. That name of the Lord is reason for comfort and confidence. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. 
So that God who makes promises is perfectly positioned to be able to keep them and fulfill them. He is faithful and he is able to protect and provide. And he's in charge. David says, Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength. All these things belong to the Lord, and the Lord is a God who gives of such gifts. Another reason for confidence. David reminds us that we are not truly owners. Everything belongs to God. It comes from him and it returns to him. It is given with his wisdom and love. Sometimes in our selfishness, we really want to try to take more control over the amount of money we have in the bank. I'm not sure just when the thought struck me, but it was many years ago. And it might have gone something like this. But let's use this number. Let's, let's just say there's something you want to purchase. And to get to that purchase, you would take $100 off of your offering for 10 weeks. So can you do the math? After 10 weeks, how much more money will be in your bank account? To say $1,000 is rather presumptuous. Really, the realization that we want to get at is just this idea. God can adjust my bank balance a whole lot more quickly than I can. And consider the foolishness of feeling secure when you have a stack of green paper that's very thin. Or the security that comes from knowing that God is committed to providing for us and for all our needs. The name of the Lord gives us confidence and yet we will struggle with fear and uncertainty. Jesus knew that about his disciples. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about his Father and gives us that prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And near the end of the chapter, he says this to his disciples. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Something I did over the years in confirmation class would, would be to ask the students, seventh graders most years, how much time do you spend worrying about money for things to eat and drink? How much time do you spend worrying about clothes or mortgage or rent payment, insurance, money for medical bills, and so on? How much time do you spend on that? Unless there was a smart aleck in the group, they would say, we don't spend any time on that at all. And then I would say, but don't you realize that without food and clothing and shelter, you would die? Why is it that you don't worry about something that is absolutely 
crucial for you to live? And they would recognize the answer. My parents take care of that. That we can say, yeah, that's my father's job. My father in heaven's job. He wants to be our father so much that he sent his beloved son to live and die in our place. One of the remarkable things that Jesus says about his father in that chapter as well, if you think about when you pray about what concerns you, he says, your heavenly father knows what you need even before you ask. We don't have the challenge of trying to figure out the right thing to to ask for so that God can respond to it. He knows what we need even before we ask. Before a word is on our tongue, he knows it completely. So worry makes sense if we find ourselves among the pagans or acting like them. What Jesus said there was... For the pagans run after all these things. The pagan, the person who falls into thinking, I'm all alone in this world. I've got to take care of what I need because nobody else will. Gets caught up in a frantic pursuit, a frantic scramble after things and possessions. But we have a father. We have a father who knows our needs and is most certainly committed to meeting those needs. When you think about Jesus as a redeemer, I would guess that you tend to think first of simply the idea of of forgiveness of sins, redemption. Here's what Paul writes to the Galatians. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive what? Forgiveness? That's in the picture. That we might receive the full rights of sons. God sent his son into this world God sent his son into this world with this mission and with this commitment that you would possess the full rights of sons. That is, it's right for you to expect from your father in heaven everything that a father properly does. Now, we're not in a position to understand why the father gives much at times and little at others while he goes from giving much to giving little, we're not in a position to do that. But we know we don't need to question his love. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely, graciously give us all things? It's hard to hold on to that that beautiful reality. These are times that certainly tempt us to fear 
not knowing just what's going to happen in all the, the trouble spots around the world. And what fear does, like what selfishness does, is it makes us small. It turns us in on ourselves. But freedom from that, freedom from that selfishness, freedom that produces peace between people, finds its reason in the loving care of our Father in heaven. When congregations face financial problems, I saw this fairly often over my years in the ministry, the thought is often expressed, if we could only get everybody to give a certain amount, and it doesn't sound all that terribly, terribly large, then we could solve all this. And it can kind of lead to those people who give generously and extravagantly kind of feeling upset with those who aren't giving. But I would suggest you recognize also this thing that goes on. If you find yourself among those who freely give, you should rejoice like David, David did and recognize there's a blessing that comes along with that. It's security that you enjoy the recognition that God is going to take care of me. Whether I have this money in the bank or not, he is going to take care of me. And that is no small thing. It's those realities about God that gave David reason for praise, reason for confidence. When you think about the ministry of this congregation and the generous giving of those people gathered around David, would encourage you to think of the people who've gone before you here. We may tend to think that our gifts are just gone, but look around you at what their generous gifts have made possible. To be able to worship in such a beautiful sanctuary dedicated to sharing the love of our God and Father in heaven as revealed in his Son, Jesus Christ. Who am I that I should give? Well, yes, the fall into sin made us small and selfish. But remember your heavenly Father and live generously, extravagantly. David's view of that was not just a one-time sort of thing. He closes our, our lesson, that reading, with this request. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Amen. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.